Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums play an important role in our lives. Nearly every good-sized city has at least one museum. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums are not only important places to display artifacts and teach us, they also contribute to the economic development of the areas where they're located. Now, here is your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning, this is Carol And today we're going to be talking about a subject that is very near and dear to my heart personally. Uh, Museums, of course, are places that are for all people of all ages, all walks of life, all ethnicities, and uh, people who have challenges, uh, physical and emotional as well. You know, the um, American with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990, uh, and that is what has given us all of those nice uh, nice sidewalk ramps that not only work for wheelchairs, but they work for people uh, who have baby strollers and work for all of us who have uh, rollerboard uh, suitcases that we're taking to and fro the airport. Uh, the American Disability Act was also expanded in 2008 to deal with disabilities that went beyond just the physical disabilities, things that we can see, to some cognitive uh, learning disabilities. And museums, of course, have uh, worked very, very hard to make their uh, institutions accessible to people who are in wheelchairs, to people who are blind, to people who are are deaf. Uh, And again, another great example of how something that was uh, uh, presented or implemented for one group, such as open captioning of all video programs uh, for people who are hearing impaired, also is really handy for those of us who who probably listen to too many rock concerts in our youth and just don't have the hearing that we used to, uh, and it, uh, it is really helpful for all of us. But there's one area of of museum uh, accessibility that I don't think uh, we have done a a very good job about, and that is uh, providing exhibitions, particularly exhibitions, some programming, for people with cognitive disabilities, uh, specifically people who have ADHD and dyslexia. And the reason that this is such a personally uh, important subject for me, of course, as most of you know, as you're listening to my show, I am an exhibit developer and I'm a writer. Uh, I've spent my entire career uh, writing for for people, hopefully writing words that they want to read and are enjoyable. But I am also the mother of a ADHD uh, young man, and when that was diagnosed. It was very shocking and frightening and full of confusion, and he could not necessarily, he could read the words that I was writing on my labels. He was always my A1 label writer reviewer, uh, but he couldn't comprehend it as well. And so, of course, as, uh, as all parents know, there is nothing more frustrating than a parent as a mother who is watching their child going through something that is so frustrating and so, such a struggle and continues to plague him today as a young man, although he's uh, doing much better, I, I will say. 
But that leads me uh, to say that today I have a guest who has been sort of my shining beacon for many, many years in this area of ADHD education, and particularly in museums, and that is Paul Gabriel. Welcome to the show, Paul. Uh, thank you, Carol. I loved your introduction. Thank you. Paul uh, Paul is based in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, I've learned about him about, uh, oh, I guess about 10 years ago when he really was the only, well, I shouldn't say the only person, but really one of the few people who were looking at the issues of, uh, of ADHD and dyslexia in, um, in museums. And Paul, I've, I've followed, I followed your research very well. And one of the things that I find very, very interesting, and, um, I want to you to have the opportunity to discuss a little bit more is your, uh, your assertion that by studying how ADHD and dyslexic populations uh, uh, navigate through museums, uh, what their challenges are, where they hit their roadblocks, really can teach museums an awful lot about uh, how general populations are also uh, affecting those same roadblocks. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so when I first got involved with museums about 14, 15 years ago, I was an exhibits director for a very, very small nonprofit historical society, and that meant I did everything <laughs> on the exhibits. Uh, I was voraciously reading as much as I could within the field about best practices. And at the same time, I happened to be training in the field I do now as well, which is educational therapy, which is working one-on-one -on -one with kids that have diagnosed learning differences or attention challenges. And as I was reading literature on visitor studies, I suddenly realized, that I had this aha moment, I suddenly realized, you know, the literature seems to show that our visitors in general, when they get into our exhibits over time, they act as if they have dyslexia and ADHD. <laughs> they want to read less and less, and they seem to have this sort of ping-pong attention span. Uh, either they don't want to focus on anything, or they'll hyper-focus on certain things. And it is, a, it is a little bit glib maybe to say this, but maybe not, in that the way our, our institutions in general have responded is they act as if they have Asperger's, meaning that they'll just talk endlessly about something that they have intense interest in and sometimes be a little bit tone deaf to the recipient's needs. And uh, I think that this kind of perfect storm is something that got me interested in exploring all of this. Uh, now, so going back to the point that you had about how can you say that this particular population has relevance for the rest of us? One thing is I think is it's really important. What I, okay, what I really loved about your introduction was your willingness, your courage to talk about your own family and your son. And I think in the museum field, one of the most important things we can do is break down the barrier between us as professionals who provide a service to them, which is the population that comes to the museums, our visitors. It's actually just all of us together. It, we seamlessly sort of go in and out of each other's groups. And I think we have to think of this as a continuum model because over time, we all go in and out of disabilities. Uh, I'm now approaching 50 years old, and if I don't have my reading glasses, there's not much that I can do in certain environments. I am disabled now in certain environments without my glasses. And 
I think that it has given me a deeper empathy with sometimes people who are dyslexic who have to go through a museum environment, and if they can't read, or if the reading is difficult to get at, or if it's tiring to work through, uh, then it just really impedes their their the quality of their their experience at the exhibition, especially if we didn't think it through, meaning we, the people who provide the service, and have inadvertently, unconsciously biased the space so that the only way to really get at the more deep symbolic meaning is through reading. And this is, I think, where you capture all kinds of people, people who maybe don't have English as a second language, people who don't have, who may be highly educated, but this may be outside their area of expertise, people who maybe don't have uh, maybe even a lot of formal education, people who don't have the time to read because they're being uh, there with large family groups or social groups, uh, people who are maybe older, who have a hard time with the glare or the font size. I could go on and on around this, but I, I uh, so that's just a major point. Um, I can I can stop here. You know, let you kind of jump in. I can then talk later about a lot of research that's happened recently in the field of neurology that I think really gives kind of a scientific research underpinning to this that explains why this would be predicted as human behavior, <laughs> why you could predict the museum fatigue effect that Beverly Sorrell figured out <laughs> a long time ago, and that really helps us see this as, as more of a human condition inside a, an environment that's really rich and exciting and has a lot to offer where we do what we call uh, free choice learning. Well, I think, I think that that's an excellent segue, Paul. Um, I think that um, I just wanted to ask you one question. When you talk about a space, you know, it's often in museums that we bias the space toward reading. Uh, is that, uh, do you mean that, that, you know, in a museum exhibit, let's say an art museum exhibit, where there are these lush, beautiful paintings on the wall, but the usually the only way that you can really uh, access them, uh, get any information about them is, is through the little label that's stuck in the corner? Yes, and often that label is written by somebody with a Ph.D. in art history who's writing to somebody else with a Ph.D. in art history. Right, right. So um, so why don't we talk a little bit about the uh, – uh, the scientific research that that you were uh, you were referencing, and then you know we'll we'll come back around in a, in a little bit and talk about uh, maybe some of the uh, the ways that museums can um, mitigate some of these effects. But I think it's really fascinating that you're finding some uh, uh, neurological evidence. You know, the brain research has just exploded in the last few years. It, it has. It has. It's made my brain explode. <laughs> There's a lot Mine out too. there. So um, I guess the, the simplest way to put this is that there's been an ability more recently with, as you said, this explosion of all this new information to start to synthesize it into a new model of thinking about the brain. And that model was captured, I think, very succinctly by a Nobel laureate in economics, a man named Daniel Kahneman. And he has a, the name of his book is Thinking Fast and Slow. But if you pick up pretty much any book right now that discusses the brain more globally and how it works, you'll, you'll hear this model come up. And Daniel Kahneman was, along with his, his uh, partner, they did a lot of research in economics, and they were challenging the model of 
the foundational model in traditional economics of, of us all being rational actors who did cost-benefit analyses when we went out and made any kind of decision in a marketplace. And they found that often people were not, were predictably making irrational decisions. And they were intrigued about what might be behind this. Uh, and this has come up again and again in a lot of areas of psych- psychological research. Uh, and it, it cuts across all parts of the human condition. The model basically states that, you know, our brain evolved over time. And so we have essentially a, one part of our brain that, that runs, chugs along unconsciously or subconsciously that is a very, very fast processor. And it's very efficient. And it just has a lot of, sort of trained reactions to the environment or embedded reactions that we got more instinctually. And it's a, again, it's a very efficient way for us to just move around and make sense of the world. Then we have added, especially the human species, we have added this other way of interacting with the environment that is much more open-ended, and that's the slow thinker. Uh, now, that slow thinker is wonderful. It's what we call free-choice learning. It permits us to stop, to not immediately react, to call up memories, to compare, to contrast, to pause over contradictions, to puzzle. It's all that wonderful thing that I think we would say often makes us human. The, the, the downside is, or, the, or whatever, the, the biological reality of it, however, is that it's very, very costly in terms of blood sugar. Our brain, the human brain, on average, is about 3% of our body weight, but it consumes about 20 to 25% of our blood sugar. And so the reason why our brain likes, whenever possible, to shift over to the fast, unconscious processor is that it's energy efficient. And so it can do the slow processing, the online processing, the free choice learning processing, but it's costly. And this is what I think is the foundation for the museum fatigue issue, is that when people go into museums, they're sensory-rich, novel learning environments. So by definition, they're going to kick in our slow brain. <laughs> and they're going to, we're going to start to poop out. And this raises issues around having adequate seating or letting people more seamlessly get in and out of the space to rest, to go to the bathroom, to get something to eat, to pause, and to get back in because they need this. And so I think there's a reason why, for example, amusement parks are so successful about sustaining people over time because they can have these very high-impact, exciting novel experiences, and then they can go rest and go back in and forth and back in and forth. Now, uh, my basic point, how we come around again to people with learning differences, is that what you, I think museums want to do is they want to be able to find a way to find, uh, locate in the environment all the pinpoints that are dragged, meaning where are you requiring the visitor to do more work than they have to do, where you're basically forcing their slow brain to kick in, where you really just want their fast brain to take over so that they, so that the energy reserves for the slow brain are supported so that they can last longer in the exhibit, that they can use the, the slow brain for what we really want them to use it for and not to, like, overuse it and overextend it and wear ourselves out, wear the visitor out. In a way, it's what I call it's like it's buying ourselves time. 
That's great, Paul. And let me stop you right there. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking more with Paul Gabriel about how museums can engage that fast brain so that the slow thinker can really enjoy the museum. We'll be back in just a moment. Thanks. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life, goals, priorities, and choices on track. The result is an easier, happier, and more inspired life. The name of the program is What Matters. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome, this is Carol Bossert, and I am here with Paul Gabriel. We're talking about accessibility, cognitive accessibility in museums. And right before the break, Paul was sharing with us his theory about um, that is that has is also part of brain uh, cognitive uh, learning and uh, neurology about uh, how we have both a brain that go, works fast and a brain that works slow so Paul could you share with us a little bit more about how museums might uh, engage let that fast brain keep going and doing doing its thing so that the slow brain can really slow down and do all that uh, uh, free choice learning and curiosity um, learning that, that we want the museum visitor to do. Sure. So let's take, for example, somebody driving up to the museum. If they have to spend a lot of time figuring out 
how to park the car, how to get from the car to the front door. When they walk in the front door, if they're a little bit disoriented and they don't know where to get the ticket, how to buy the ticket, they maybe go to one counter and they're sent to a different counter. Uh, and then they have to get oriented towards well, where are the bathrooms, where's maybe food that I need to get later, how am I going to get downstairs or upstairs or wherever I need to go to the, the main exhibition hall or, or just where, where are things laid out in the museum, how do I get started? And I could kind of go on with, again, I call these like micro decision points or pinpoints. The more I have to worry this over consciously and work hard on it, I'm worn out. I've burned through my gas tank before I even get to the stuff. Then once I'm in the hall or the rooms, there might be uh, a lot of noise. The rooms may be designed so that uh, there's a lot of like tinny reverberation, a lot of people walking back and forth in front of me. There may not be, uh, the lighting may be too bright or there may be a lot of reflective glare on cases. Uh, can be maybe that there's a docent leading a tour and they're, because they have to have these people going around with them, they're speaking very loudly. And then like in a, one of these <laughs> crowded restaurants, if somebody next to my table speaks loudly, I raise my voice <laughs> and then they raise their voice. And it's sort of like this mutually assured destruction that keeps ratcheting up. And I don't think anybody means to do this, but it can get very, very loud. And what we forget is that in order to do free choice learning, we have to focus. And that's the beauty of our, of this slow brain that we have is we have the ability to focus and work on something, to set aside the world as it is right now and to screen it out. But that comes at a cost because you have to, to be able to focus requires effort. And the idea, for example, of flow that I know has been very popular in museums is scientifically, has scientifically a name called effortless attention. But effortless attention is only possible for people who have mastery over a subject. They're so good at it and it has become so second nature to them that they're able to attend to something without effort. But for the rest of us who are engaging something new uh, or something unusual, by definition, attention will be effortful. It will never be effortless. And so museums can't really design in effortless attention at that level. But what they can do is they can design in things that support the attention or support the effort, again, by not making it an effort to get there. It's what I call um, easy access, complex outcomes. So you want to make, like, getting around, the accessing everything, you want to make that as easy as possible. You want to support the, uh, the switch over to the fast brain so that the complex outcomes or the slow brain can have fun. And, I mean, that's sort of the, the bottom line of it there. What are some of the other ways that museum, uh, let's, uh, 
that museum exhibits can support the uh, the the non the non expert the person who's coming in uh, to to an exhibit and says you know I really I, I'm interested in the subject because I've freely chosen to to engage in it but I don't you know I, I I don't have that say intellectual framework or all the background information and I'm and I know when I go into uh, an, say an art exhibit on uh, 17th century painters I get a little nervous I, I can actually feel my body tense up a little bit because I I'm a you know I'm I'm realizing that I don't know this subject, and of course, I want to go run and find a book somewhere, and and maybe study up for a couple of months, and then come back and see the exhibit. But you know, that's that's not very realistic. So, so what are some of the things that that uh, museums can can do to help reduce that anxiety? <laughs> yeah, okay. that's such a great point, Carol, about the anxiety. Uh, I just want to very quickly address that immediately because I think it's it's actually the most important point because if people are feeling anxious and God forbid the museum environment not not directly or I think consciously makes them feel less than or even stupid then they're going to not really be able to feel free to engage they're going to be uh, anxious and that's one of the worst ways I know professionally to just shut down your, your frontal lobes and their ability to do good work and to really maintain attention and focus. So years ago, I was, at the, I was doing a, a formative evaluation for an exhibition, a summit evaluation, rather, uh, down at the San Diego Natural History Museum, and I had brought in a group of ADHD and dyslexic teens and adults to review the space. And there was one woman who was in her 60s. She was a grandmother. And she remembers as a child, she was brought in a school group into the museum, and she loved it. She said everything was explained to her. And then when she became a mother later, she went back to the museum thinking she wanted to replicate that happy experience with her own children. But because her, she was dyslexic and it had never really been successfully remediated at that point in her life, she went around and she said, you know, I looked at the things, and for me, she said, my children are smart. They're going to be curious. They're going to want to ask questions. And the only way I could answer the questions was to read. And when I went around and looked at what was available, I couldn't read it. And she said, I, the last thing I'm going to do is embarrass myself in front of my children in public. So she said, instead, I took them to SeaWorld or Disneyland. Now, she didn't do that because she felt museums were snobby or she didn't like museums, or she just preferred, quote-unquote, you know, a, a, a less intellectually stimulating, free-choice environment to spend her time recreationally. She was emotionally afraid. Uh, and I think that we sometimes forget that this can happen to a lot of visitors, especially if they're new to museums, if they don't really know how to behave in museums. So I just wanted to put that out there because I think that is such an important point. Uh, now, let's go back here, as you were saying, what can museums do? So let's take some of these learning differences one by one and see what they teach us. So let's start with a dyslexic. Uh, so what a dyslexic reminds us is that oral language comes with us as human beings. It's natural to us. It's actually our first sort of 
interactive multimedia technology. <laughs> it's the first mm-hmm. thing that permitted us to, you know, really get along with each other and, and share information across time and space. And it really is sort of the, the beginning and end all of everything. So if you look at all the new social media, it's still about people wanting to just share and gossip with each other. And I think we have to remember the primacy of oral language and social interaction in spaces. So even if somebody wants some downtime and wants some private individual time, they'll maybe want to share it. Uh, and this, so written language is about 5,000 years old. It's a new addition. It's this wonderful thing we can do with our slow brain, but it's a new addition. And it takes a lot of effort to acquire and to use. I think all of us know that when we read, at least when I read, I like to be reclined on my couch with nice little like snackies and maybe a hot tea or a cup of coffee. I like it quiet and I can really concentrate. Well, reading that happens in museums is happening in a very different environment. And so again, it's putting a lot of stresses on our brain to screen things out and to focus. So I think this is one of the reasons why people poop out on the reading over time in museums. So one thing to think about is the font size, the lack of glare, <laughs> the, the immediacy of the text, these things around making sure the lines are not too long, that the grammar is not too tangled. Uh, I know that sometimes people feel this is dumbing down the text. I don't really think it's dumbing down the text. I think it's a challenge to us as professionals to be able to communicate our meaning in ways that are immediately accessible. It's sort of like saying to somebody, Welcome to the museum, but you must go through the member's entrance. Uh, you can't, you know, whereas why can't people all go through the front door? What's the problem of having the immediate access to the environment be more like a very welcoming front door? Why does it sometimes have to read as a member's entrance? And uh, I think we do have to remember that universe, the expectation of universal literacy for the human population is at the most 200 years old maybe even a lot of places in the world, including parts of the United States, maybe not even 50 years old, that only about 20% or 25% of American eighth graders on national tests tested reading competency, or proficiency, rather. That we really need to understand that most of the people who want to come into the museum are not going to be, uh, that reading is going to be a challenge for them, and that when things get... When push comes to shove and they get tired, they're going to want oral language. So they're going to want the videos. They're going to want the audio guides. They're going to want um, people to talk to, to talk through, to have an oral language alternative. Uh, Or they may want, if they do want to read something, they maybe don't want it just right there in the wall. They may want to be able to go to the side. They may maybe not be removed. Like often these rooms where you get additional, more in-depth information, you actually have to leave the space, walk out, go off to like a separate little like learning exploration center. Whereas I think what people really would like, and I've seen this done sometimes, and it's very successful, is to have within certain areas to the side, have an area where people can go and sit in comfortable chairs, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they can access... Uh, with headphones, they can access, like, listening to the artist, listening to people talk about the artist. They could pick up 
of readers that have articles and more in-depth information. And again, that supports that supports our body, supports our brain to do that more kind of thoughtful, in-depth stuff. I can then look around the space and think about what I'm hearing and reading. And, and then the people who want to just get up and move around, awesome. Do that. People who don't want that more in-depth thing in the museum, that's great. But this is what I'm saying in terms of 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 being clear about sending a message that if you really do want to sit down and read, you're welcome to do it, but you don't have to, like, exit. You can do it in that space without sort of having to sit in front of everybody because when you put a lot of text and things on the wall right next to the objects, you're basically telling somebody, pull up your chair right here and kind of sit in front of everybody and read while they're trying to look at something. So I think it's these kinds of pinpoint design decisions make a lot of sense. And I think that, you know, people just need more room. They need more ability to sit down everywhere with chairs that have backs and arm <laughs> armrests. Uh, oh, because it's very I, tiring to sit and to hold your body up straight. Uh, I think, you know, yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, and, and I, you know, I had never really thought about the, the, uh, you know, the art museum model often is the, the nice, cozy chairs and the table that might have the gallery guide or or additional materials or or even videos you know as you say about the artist are often at the end of the exhibit uh after mm-hmm. you know after you've looked at everything and then then you have a chance to sit down and you know i think the theory was oh well then people can reflect on what they saw but what you're saying is if you don't integrate that kind of sitting and thinking and and enjoying in the nice comfy chairs then it really can't uh isn't isn't all that helpful Correct. And and to go back to another point you made, which I think is a very important point, again, about your own experience. I think it's, and I really have enjoyed very much, Carol, listening to you share your own experience. Because I think, again, we have to remind ourselves as museum practitioners that we're also just, we switch our hats very easily, and then we just become the regular museum visitor as well. And you mentioned how you may go into an exhibition that's outside of your area of expertise, say 17th century art. Well, what I've noticed is I, there was a museum I was asked to go in and, and do an, uh, an all-day workshop with the staff around sort of examining their environment around these issues. And what I noticed was, and I think this is not atypical, this museum is not outside the norm. It was an art museum. For all the European galleries... They were organized by uh, chronological period, but you kind of had to be in the know again. You had to be one of the members. You had to go through the members' entrance. Like You're supposed to know the trajectory of art history, and you're supposed to know the periods. So you're supposed to be able to go into a room and, and just be able to say, ah, that's 19th century French Impressionism. <laughs> mm-hmm. or, or that's, you know, oh, that's like, uh, that's, you know, that's late Italian medieval art bordering on the beginning of the Renaissance, you know. And so what was interesting, though, was for the art they had that was non-Western. When you when you first went into the gallery, they had a large map telling you where it was 
geographically. They, they Basically, they oriented you with a lot of key contextualizing information that they omitted for the European art. And it's, again, it's these kinds of unconscious decisions in the space. So if I go in, notice that the message is sent that everybody should not know about whatever everybody is, should not know about the non-European art, but, any, but everybody should know European art history. And if you don't know it, again, it's embarrassing to ask. Like, what room am I in? <laughs> what am I looking at? Like, what is Impressionism? You know, and, and so people are not going to want to do that unless they're very brave. Uh, so one of the things I want to say about dyslexics, about the oral language, is there is research that also shows that people tend to remember better things that they hear than they read, uh, especially if they're in an, an environment where they have, you know, it's more, there's a lot more going on. Again, it's our default setting. It's our, I call it our sort of our, our navel. It's our, our mother. It's where we go back to when, when we need to get comfy, when we feel like we're getting a little bit overloaded. We'll all fall back to what comes to us easiest, what's our first nature. And, I, uh, there's also interesting research around this that adults, no matter how educated they are, meaning even PhD level, if they get outside their area of expertise into something that's really new for them and it's a little bit more abstract and complicated, they actually prefer text that's the sixth grade to eighth grade level. So I work with kids, I, I work with kids in elementary schools. Look, these kids in sixth through eighth grade are learning about Geological evolution, photosynthesis, ancient China, uh, they're beginning pre-algebra or even starting algebra. They're doing linear equations in eighth grade. They're not dumb. <laughs> and they can handle complex topics, but it's new for them, and it's overwhelming. And yes. One, and... one other thing that, that has taught us is I think we have to remember that for English as a language, its origin is complex, it's a mutt, but its navel, its mother point, its first nature as a language is German. It belongs to the Germanic languages if it's classified linguistically. Right, has, and so let so let me just stop here yeah. right there, Paul. We're going to take a real quick break. Uh, sorry to uh, uh, oh, no, interrupt no, 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 that, no. that tread. And uh, we will be back in a minute with Paul Gabriel and uh, focusing on uh, language in museums. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Join us for Cruise Views, an exciting behind-the-scenes look into what makes your cruise vacation tick, as well as the guests, crew, and industry experts that are the sailing force behind some of the world's top cruise offerings. Cruise Views with Ken Muscat, brought to you by MSC Cruises, will help you make the most of your travel budget. Find out more about the -the state-of-the-art cruise ships sailing the high seas and get the inside scoop on the latest innovations and destinations. Ken will also feature surprises, including weekly giveaways and more. Join us Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. And we're back with Paul Gabriel. And uh, right before we broke, uh, Paul, you were talking to us a little bit about the challenges of the English language. Do you want to finish that thought? Sure. So what I'd mentioned was is that the origin of English is that it's a Germanic language. It later had, for historical reasons, it had French and Latin and Greek added into it. It's given us the largest vocabulary of any language in the world. It's a beautiful, rich language. And that's, it's a wonderful thing, but those are tiers of formality. So German is, so to speak, when we're in our flip-flops, we just feel most comfortable. It's something that doesn't really require any schooling to acquire. It's our core. It's our navel. Then you have sort of this French, Latin layer around it, which is more formal, that you begin to get at school. And then if you continue your schooling to the highest academic degrees, you get a lot of these Latin and Greek level of word and word usage. So the problem is a lot of us have moved way up in the field into Latin and Greek levels, and then we need to translate that back down to people who made, for whom that is maybe not familiar at all. It's not second nature to them. It's foreign. So dyslexics always remind me of this, how their own language can almost be like a foreign language to them, their native language, once it transfers into formal written usage. So we just have to remember as professionals to translate things back into easy, accessible German definitions, German-based words. And this is actually what we do. I've noticed this with my kids. So if they don't understand what the word, for, 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 for example, acquisition means, I'll just say, oh, it means to get something. And they'll say, oh, got it. <laughs> right, and, right. And, and also research shows that people need three successful uh, experiences with the word before they really own it. So we have to find ways to constantly, at the beginning, present key vocabulary and present it in a way that's very easy to get at and then just let people repeat it unconsciously in the exhibit. And then that will build confidence. They'll feel good about it, and then they'll feel better about what they're doing there. Um, there's psychological research around that as well. So uh, last thing I just wanted to say is, is this also predicts for us why uh, audio guides are probably the one most popular uh, assistive technology in museum environments for everybody. People like oral language, regardless. So I now wanted to switch over to the ADHD part and what these, these kinds of people can teach us about how our brain, what our brain needs at a more subconscious level. Uh, I think the people at ADHD really, really remind us about how distracting an environment is in terms of sound and sight. And again, this is a sometimes just sheer noise levels. I've had people who have ADHD, they hear, for example, the AV system kind of humming along in a room. Or there was one room, like again, down at the San Diego Natural History Museum, they were attempting to recreate a time in San Diego when it was underwater. And so it was an aquatic environment and there were sea, there were seabirds. And so they had the sound of birds and 
great guy. He was a team. He said he went into that space and he kept looking up and he kept thinking, like, there are birds in the AV system. What's going on in the <laughs> Yeah, No, you're right. Because, see, exhibit developers like me will say, oh, let's add ambient sound to the exhibit to give it a more naturalistic feel. It will en enhance the experience for all. And it doesn't. Well, okay. When I took some teens to the Oakland History Museum, when you first walked in to the History Hall, they began, I think, quite rightly with the indigenous peoples from the Bay Area, and they were trying to recreate an environment, so they had playing in a, you know, relative, not a high volume, but you could hear it playing uh, them doing sort of ritualized chants and singing. And the ADHD people told me that they bolted out of there as soon as they could because they don't really have the ability very well to turn off that, that, that sound. They don't, they, their unconscious blocking doesn't work that well, and that's why they're so distractible. But they remind us of how much in the environment we're doing anyways and we don't think about it, like how much work that environment's forcing us to do. And, I, again, this gets into glare. Like a lot of the ADHD people will say they'll look at a case and sometimes they'll get distracted by the reflective, reflectivity of the case, like what you see in the glass that's not in, under the glass but what's being reflected in the glass or the light play and things like this. And they also have really taught me, when I took them to the Exploratorium, they, there are many things about the Exploratorium in San Francisco, the Science Discovery Center, that Pioneering Discovery Center, and this was at the older one, and this was years ago, they, they, to be fair. They loved it, but in some ways they didn't like it because they felt a lot of the stuff was too much of like a one-trick pony, like you pull a lever or you turn up a flap, and that was it. They really wanted something, again, with a more complex outcome. They wanted something that would be more engaging in a, on a deeper sense. Uh, and they, and they, while they appreciated being able to move something, because <laughs> they just like to move things around, they understood that they were just moving it for the sake of moving it. They weren't really learning anything. And I know the museums like to do this often, but I think they have to be aware that often if you're lifting up a flap, Again, this gets back to oral language. Often that works best when you're in a group and there's maybe a parent, a child, and they're having a conversation around this activity. But you'll often, I think, see in museums, the kids go through and they're just like banging and opening and banging and opening and pushing buttons. And people have told me a lot of that stuff breaks pretty rapidly in museums. And I think it's because the kids just like the interactivity for its own sake. And that's another thing that ADHD people teach us is that people like interactivity. They like to touch. They like to do things with what they're, they're experiencing. But you have to be careful because if you don't let the interactivity have a higher purpose or take you someplace or be more, have more uh, interesting steps to it so it becomes sort of like a game, then it just becomes interactivity for its own sake. People just go around and just push things and lift things, and <clears throat> they're maybe not necessarily doing what you'd like them to do with the space. Right. Well, you know, and that gets back to what you uh, told us uh, earlier, that if if your only options for engaging in an exhibit are pulling up a flap, even though it may be a lame outcome, or having to read, um, if you are not predisposed to reading, or if you are, as you say, tired, uh, fatigued, uh, you're going to lift the flap. Yes. 
Yes, and I think, you know, again, we have to remember, just as dyslexics teach us that oral language is our, our origin point for sort of symbolic communication, and reading came later, and reading takes people learn how to read and write all the way through grad school. It's not just learning your ABCs. People with ADHD re- remind us that as human beings, we have this wonderful thing called the prefrontal cortex, this wonderful thing that permits us to shut out the world as it is right now, to delay immediate response to the environment, and to focus and attend sometimes internally, and to think and wonder and imagine. But it comes at a cost, and it's predicated on being able to focus. And so the more the environment has a lot of hyperstimulation in it and is distracting that way, the harder it is for us to maintain the focus. So we poop out. We have, again, what I call the poop-out factor or what Beverly Sorrell put her finger on is that the average visitor, no matter how educated, what, what gender, what you know, gender, sex, age, 20 minutes, <clears throat> they start to lose it. And that's how museums are configured right now. Uh, I don't think that that has to be some kind of hard and fast number. I think it's a statement more about the environments right now on average, or at least at the time she did the studies. So the, the last thing I wanted to bring up was about people with Asperger's, or we're out on that end of the spectrum. And I think, again, the, the part of our deep humanity that they remind us of is that we're extremely social animals, that we crave being together. Uh, if you go into an environment, it, architects know this. If you go into an environment, you can predict where people will go. Often people will turn to the right or they'll follow certain sight lines, but people will also go to wherever there's a group. So that's something to think, too, about how the exhibit is designed is that people will go where there are groups. They'll, they'll inherently think that's interesting. They'll, they'll want to flock. But then they're going to also maybe need some space side spaces or side eddies where they can maybe be a little bit more private or quiet. And that these people who have Asperger's also, you know, for whatever reason, they find social communication and social gatherings confusing. Uh, it just doesn't come naturally to them. And sometimes it's even threatening. And they don't really know how to role play very well. So they need very explicit instruction about, like, how to be somebody in a situation I think they really remind us, like, to what degree are you know, we assuming our visitors are supposed to know how to be a visitor in our kind of museum? Or how welcoming are we really to the new visitors who've never been there before who kind of want to know, like, well, what do I do? How do I do this? I don't, they don't know how to do any of it. They, they, they need help. And they don't want to be talked down to either. <clears throat> they want to be welcomed. And and last thing is I think that people with Asperger's and ADHD also really remind us that sometimes an environment that's too free form, that doesn't have enough structure or pathways, is threatening or intimidating or overwhelming to people. So the dyslexics I work with, they're very, very comfortable with an environment that doesn't have very much obvious structure to it. But people with ADHD and who are more over towards the Asperger's spectrum, they really want more of what I call like a soft structure or maybe even a harder structure. So some people with Asperger's, they want to take the audio tour. They want to go to number one, number two, number three, number four, in that order. 
they want it, they want to be walked very explicitly and directly through something that's very new to them and have it explained very clearly to them and to really go through it uh, in that way. And I know that there was a lot of pushback in the museum field against this, saying that this was an older didactic model and museums needed to surrender authority to visitors and provide more free choices. And I don't disagree, but I think we have to remember, for some visitors, their free choice is structure. <laughs> they want it and they crave it. I think that that is a that that is a very important take home lesson for museums. Uh, I just want to wrap wrap up here a little bit with a couple of things that I've heard, Paul, that I think are are really really important uh, for for us as museum uh, uh, creators to keep in mind. One, remember, people read museum labels in a very foreign environment from when you're reading it in the quiet of your office. So when you're you're evaluating that museum text that's going to go on the wall, you need to stick it on the wall in the gallery and try to read it there. Uh, it's important to remember that people uh, uh, need to sit down and feel comfortable, and that's not in those hard, hard benches. Uh, that's in a cozy chair like just like in your living room. And uh, more importantly, that dyslexic, uh, ADHD, um, Asperger's uh, uh, people have a lot to teach all of us in the population. And just like when we are visiting with a friend who perhaps is blind or is deaf, we're in that social visiting group. Uh, and so we need to do things that work for the entire group. And just like those little ramps on the sidewalk, if it works for one group, it will work for all. Paul, I really want to thank you. Uh, as, as you know, you're one of my, my greatest heroes, both, both personally and professionally, for continuing to bring this uh, subject up to all museum educators and uh, in working with the American Alliance for Museums. Uh, I just want to say thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart. Uh, keep up the good fight and keep reminding us uh, that we really need to create museums for everyone. Paul, thank well, you so much for being on my show today. Thank you, Carol. And also, <clears throat> I just wanted to really thank you on behalf of the people that I work with and bringing this to the attention of the museum field. I'm so appreciative that you provided them this opportunity. Well, with that, we are off the air. Join me next week. And remember, you can always reach me at carolbossertservices.com to continue on with the conversation. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With the weekend coming up, why not plan a trip to your favorite museum or one you've never been to? 